We hope you are enjoying Nightbleed. Please give the podcast a positive review. Oh, now we begin. Episode 4, Bloodstained Family. There was blood all over the place. Blood always seemed to be in abundance in Brick Anderson's life. The case began when a burnt-out Acura was discovered outside the gates of the mayor's mansion. This car led them to a tree-lined street in an affluent neighborhood and another of the boogeyman's vicious murders. The victims were Ken Fisher and his fiancée Sasha, who went by Jenny. Their corpses were still in the early stages of rigor mortis. He's escalating, Detective Anderson muttered. There weren't any fingerprints at the scene, not even a strand of hair. It was evident that the couple hadn't been killed inside the house. Anderson hypothesized that they were murdered in the car, then moved to the house and the car was subsequently set on fire. This is bad, the commissioner hesitated before entering the bedroom. We have to catch this perpetrator. The commissioner's voice trembled with panic. Brick remained silent, his mind grappling with the clues, or rather, the lack thereof. The puzzle before him was missing too many pieces. Where is that psychopath, Nightbleed? The commissioner gruffly asked. Brick finally looked up. He's working on it. The commissioner gave him a skeptical look. Well, he's not working fast enough. Brick knew the commissioner was more concerned about keeping his job. Murders were a daily occurrence in Bedlam, but when wealthy people started getting mutilated or hung from ceilings, that was a different story. The elite were off-limits. The poor, well, they were a dime a dozen, and there were always more dimes. Brick stepped outside of the house for a breath of fresh air and a cigarette. He slipped the Marlboro between his lips. He had quit two months ago, but the boogeyman case had brought him back to the vice with a vengeance. It felt good to pollute his lungs. He glared at the growing crowd gathering at the scene. The red rotating lights of the ambulance beckoned them like moths to a flame. Anderson took a long drag on his cigarette and slowly exhaled the smoke through his nostrils. He glanced up and saw a figure standing on the roof of a house across the street, a cape flapping in the night air. It was Nightbleed. Detective Anderson felt a small amount of relief knowing he wasn't in this alone. A collective gasp rose from the crowd as the bodies were brought out of the house, one at a time, on rattling gurneys. Something must be done, someone yelled from the crowd. This is unacceptable, yelled another. Detective Anderson returned his gaze to the roof across the street, but Nightbleed was gone. The city was on edge, like tiny hairs standing on end. The only relief was that, so far, the serial killer had only targeted young, affluent couples, but trouble always seemed to find its way downstream. Nightbleed leaped from the rooftop of a building onto the fire escape and quietly descended the street. Exhaustion weighed on him as he slipped through the dark crevice between the buildings. Angie Devers was roughly pushed out of the suds and grub bar doors for her disorderly conduct. She had indulged in a few too many drinks, but her actions were a result of catching her boyfriend cheating on her. In a fit of irrational anger, she had attacked both her boyfriend and the other woman, resulting in her being promptly kicked out of the bar with neither her phone nor purse. To make matters worse, her boyfriend, Jason, had chosen to stay inside. This seemed to be the recurring theme in her life, one disaster after another. 
Angie stood outside the bar, gesturing for Jason to come out, but he simply ignored her. The thought of barging back into the bar crossed her mind, but the burly bouncer was watching her with a sinister smirk. The idea of being thrown out once more held little appeal. Angie turned away and began walking down the street. She exhaled warm breath onto her cold, icy hands. The skimpy black dress she wore provided no protection against the cold. She decided to walk a few blocks until she found a 24-hour convenience store where she could borrow a phone. She planned to call her ex-boyfriend, Paul, to pick her up and give him the night of his life. After all, there was nothing like a little revenge fuck. And so she continued on her way. As Angie distanced herself from the bar, the number of people dwindled and the surroundings grew quieter. It even seemed to darken, as though she were entering a room swallowed by darkness. She brushed off the emerging alarm in her mind, confident that she'd find a convenience store soon. In this part of town, there was no shortage of 24-hour stores. She turned the corner, and it felt like stepping into another realm, desolate, solitary, and ominous. The cold was biting, and Angie considered turning back, but the thought of facing Jason's smug expression pushed her forward. Her pace quickened, and she thought to herself, Where the heck are these stores? As the initial bravado faded, the sobering reality set in. Fear began to creep in, and Angie no longer felt safe. She didn't recognize the street signs, and her sense of direction was lost. The buildings around her grew increasingly grim and dingy. Was that siren she heard? Angie muttered in panic. Yes, fear was gripping her. Her mind was so preoccupied with conjuring up potential dangers that she remained oblivious to the very real threat tailing her. But it didn't take long for her to register the out-of-sync footfalls echoing behind her. Angie glanced over her shoulder and saw a man following her on the opposite side of the street. Their eyes met briefly and she quickly turned away, muttering, Oh no, oh no. She increased her pace, her breaths coming in rapid gulps. Shit, 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 she thought, wishing she had the courage to approach the bar's bouncer. Anything would have been better than the predicament she now found herself in. Angie scanned the empty street desperately, but there was no one to help her, no one to come to her aid. She was alone. She looked over her shoulder once more, and to her horror, she saw that he had crossed the street and was now walking faster on her side. Startled and terrified, Angie began to run, her pace so frantic that she stumbled out of her nine-inch heels. She could hear the man running behind her, and soon he caught up to her. His fingers gripped the fabric of her dress, yanking her to the ground with astonishing swiftness, and he dragged her into the alleyway. Angie tried to scream, but it was choked off by fear. He was towering over her, legs spread apart. He leered at her, the struggling street lamp cast an ominous glow behind him. Now, what is a pretty girl like you doing out here all alone? He asked. Angie opened her mouth to speak, but nothing came out. His smile deepened. It doesn't matter. We are here now. We might as well enjoy ourselves. 
Angie scrambled to her feet, backing away from him. He advanced towards her slowly, deliberately. She could smell him, all sweaty and musty. He smelled unclean. Then he was mere inches from her, face to face, breathing the same air. He pressed his crotch against her, leaving no doubt about his intentions. We can do this the easy way, or the hard way, understand? Angie nodded, closing her eyes as he fondled her. His hands caressed her breasts, then roved lower, and then lower still. Angie stilled herself for the violation to come, but then, nothing. Angie held her eyes shut, waiting. The sound of her breath pounded in her ear. And then, it was suddenly interrupted by a choking guttural sound. She opened her eyes to see her assailant's wide, terrified stare. He tried to speak, clawed at his throat, at the thin wire around his neck embedded within the folds. He was pleading for her, for her, to do what? And just like that, her would-be rapist was snatched away, snatched from the narrow passage itself. Seconds later, the strangulation sounds died down to a whimper and then ceased altogether. Angie stood there paralyzed. Minutes ticked by before she finally gathered the nerve to walk out of the alley. She peeked around the corner and came face to face with him. He grabbed her by the shoulders and slammed her hard against the brick facade. Please don't hurt me, Angie breathed. What did you see? He asked. Nothing, I... I didn't see anything, she stammered. Are you sure? She nodded frantically. Nightbleed held up the garret he'd used to kill her assailant. It was coated with a thick coat of blood that dripped onto the sidewalk. If you speak a word of this to anyone, you'll be wearing this next. He leaned in so close to her, their lips touched. Nightbleed was there to catch her when she fainted. Jackal deposited the unconscious woman outside of the police station before heading home for the night. He'd returned to Ravenhurst Manor, but hadn't gone to the main house. No, he'd headed to the little cabana on the property. The little cabana where Jaiselberta slept. He had a key to the property, but he decided to pry open the bathroom window and squeeze through the window. He silently made his way to the old woman's bedroom, where he stood over the bed watching her. She looked so peaceful. This was the woman who'd been like a grandmother to him. For so long, it had been just him and her. She was the only family he had left. He stood there for a while, listening to her soft snoring. His heart was heavy as he walked closer to the bed. As if sensing him in the room, Giselberta stirred awake and sat up in her bed. The black hair that she normally kept in a bun was loose and cascaded down her back. Mr. Jackal? she inquired. Is everything all right? No, my friend, he muttered. 
everything is not all right. to Simone, grabbing her attention as she emerged from the school building. She smiled at the sight of him. Hey, you. She smiled, walking over to him. What are you doing here? Enrique smiled. I was in the area and was hoping I could take you out for coffee. Simone glanced at her watch, then nodded. Yeah, okay, she said. They walked together around the corner to the Coffee O'Clock Cafe. He'd wanted to hold her hand, but the gleaming ring on her finger was a constant reminder that she belonged to another. They ordered coffee and Simone ordered a cream-filled pastry. She was wearing black orchid perfume, and it took incredible discipline not to sniff her. Enrique tried to steer her to a back table in the corner, but she decided on a small table next to the windows. How was your day? Enrique asked. As good as could be surrounded by kindergartners all day. She took a bite of the gooey pastry and smiled. I'm kidding. I love my job and my kids. Enrique thought back to the boy with the ball, the one who looked like he could have been the offspring of his and Simone. He'd never thought about having children. Didn't particularly like children, but for Simone, he would have a house full of them. What about you? What are you doing now? Enrique shrugged. Not much. I travel. I make some investments in businesses and some charity work. She giggled. I guess that's a good way to spend a billion dollars. There was a hint of disapproval in her voice. You don't approve? She took another bite of the pastry. I don't think there should be any billionaires. I think it's unethical. Enrique's eyes hardened. Here was a woman who'd been born into wealth. A woman who hadn't had to lift a finger her entire life. A woman who'd had rich men jostling for her attention since the day her boobs had blossomed, and she had the nerve to talk about ethics. He smiled. What? she asked. You? I can't get over how you haven't changed, he said. Simone took a sip of her coffee. I hope that's a good thing. Of course, Enrique said hoarsely. You've always been. He stared at her lustfully. Don't, whispered, shifting under his intense gaze. He broke eye contact and inhaled deeply. What happened to your face? She asked. Enrique touched the scratches on his face. Oh, I adopted a cat, he said. Apparently it hates you. Yeah, I got rid of the bitch, he said. Simone laughed, finishing off the coffee. Her laugh had a beautiful melodic tone to it. It gave him butterflies. They dusted off their memories and laughed and joked and strolled down memory lane, careful to sidestep any conversation about Chad or her marriage. So you're single? She asked, sipping the last of her coffee. Enrique nodded. Why? She asked. Enrique ran his fingers through his hair. Waiting for another you, I guess. Their eyes locked, and Enrique flashed back to a time long ago where he went by the nickname Rick, and Simone had been his. Back to the last time he had been himself. After that early morning in the park where Austin and Brandt had jumped him, and Simone had shown him so much kindness, 
Afterwards, the two had secretly began seeing each other, sneaking off to the park or hiding in plain sight under the darkness of a movie theater, or hanging out at the lake drinking beer where Simone would tell him about her demanding father and pill-popping mother shattering Enrique's perception that she'd led a perfect life, and he would tell her about his mother abandoning him and his father's heroin addiction. Day by day, they'd fallen in love. He fell in love with her beauty and kindness. She fell in love with his dark good looks and the fact he wrote poetry. Where others found him brooding and sullen, Simone understood him. They'd dreamed of running away together, of making a life. They had been stupid. People from Simone's world didn't run away from boys from the wrong side of the track. Trailer trash like Rick Jackal didn't get the princess. Life simply didn't work that way. Yet they tried to defy the odds. They'd been slow burning their way to intimacy, but had not gone all the way yet. Then tragedy struck Enrique again. His mother had died under suspicious circumstances. She'd been found in an alley with a needle in her arm and ligature marks on her neck. Enrique's father had taken out an insurance policy on his mother years ago, and although they'd lived in squalor, his father had made sure to keep the policy in effect. It was as if they'd won the lottery and his father hand gone out to celebrate by going on a drug and alcohol binge. Enrique had been left to mourn a woman he barely remembered. Simone had met him in the park, and he'd cried in her arms. She'd kissed him and held him. She'd kissed the pain away, and in the cool night air, they'd made love for the first time. Afterwards, they'd pulled up their clothes and lay in each other's arms, quite content. Are you mine? He'd asked. Always, she'd said, snuggling closer to him. They had taken each other's virginity, and it had seemed like a bond that would last forever. They'd been on the brink of sleep when they'd heard them coming. There he is! Austin Martin screamed, marching up on them with Brant in tow. Enrique reluctantly released Simone and got to his feet. Hey, fuckface, Austin said. His eyes widened when he saw Simone behind him, his face crumpled in fury. Simone, what the hell are you doing with this... this... trash? Don't talk to her like that, Enrique snarled stepping forward menacingly, fist balled at the ready. Austin swung and the two began a violent exchange. Enrique body slammed Austin and began pummeling him. All of the hurt he'd stored about his mother's death and his situation in life went through his fists and onto Austin's face. He could Simone screaming in the background, but he couldn't, wouldn't stop. And then everything went dark. When he awoke, he was in the hospital with the hair at the back of his head, shaven and bandaged. He learned that Brandt had feared Enrique was killing Austin, and to make him stop, he'd hit Enrique in the back of the head with a brick. Enrique had been in a coma for three days. When he'd awaken, he'd been all alone. Simone snapped her fingers. Hello? Are you there? Enrique blinked back into the present. Sorry, I got lost for a second. Simone glanced at her watch. I'm sorry I gotta go. She stood to leave. Wait, can I see you again? Enrique asked. He could see the internal struggle on her face, weighing the morality of continuing to see him. 
I don't know Rick. Simone, please. She smiled. Sure. They hugged goodbye, and she ignored his erection. He watched her walk away. His hope had been restored. Enrique Jackal was in high spirits when he started for Ravenhurst Manor. After his coffee date with Simone, he'd went to the gym, played golf, napped, and finally ended up at a bar called La Brea, celebrating having won is way back into Simone's life. It was the beginning stages, of course, but he was confident he'd be able to re-establish the connection he'd once had with her, the connection they'd shared before he'd awakened from the coma years ago. Lacking insurance, the hospital had dumped him out on the streets without a dollar to his name. His father hadn't answered any of his phone calls. He'd walked the three miles home in a steady rain. By the time he'd gotten home, he was furious. The door to the trailer had been wide open, rainwater seeping inside. He found his father naked lying across his soiled bed with a syringe in his arm. Rage surged inside of Enrique. He'd lost his mother, and this man, his father, had celebrated by sticking poison in his arm. He stepped closer to the bed and looked down on his father. The hate swelled in him like a balloon. He angrily swiped at the tears. I hate you, he whispered. I hate you, he said louder. He wasn't sure when the ideal fertilized in his head, but he was pregnant with the idea of killing his father. He moved closer to the bed. His father was snoring softly, mouth opened and eyelids partially open. Enrique reached out and placed his hands around his father's neck, and he squeezed. I hate you. He squeezed tighter and harder. His father gasped, struggling to surface from the weight of the heroine. Son! His father had gasped. He was dying. He was dying with a needle in his arm. Enrique continued to squeeze long after his father's last breath. Often, after a tragedy, a blessing will arise like a rainbow after the storm. Enrique's rainbow came in the form of Adolf Mooring, his mother's brother. Unlike his mother, Mooring had used his family's wealth to accumulate even more wealth until he eventually became a tech billionaire. A confirmed bachelor with no children of his own, Mooring had taken pity on his orphaned nephew and agreed to take him as his ward. As his uncle's ward, the world opened up to him, and he held it in the palm of his hand. Where he hadn't been good enough for Simone before, her family now encouraged their relationship. But things were different now, because Enrique was different. He was no longer Rick Jackal. He was Enrique Mooring. No, the true change had taken place when he awakened from his coma. Simone had tried to make it work with Enrique, but he had become an angry and possessive man. After high school, he had followed her to Prescott College, where he watched her every move. She had flourished, becoming popular and pledging the Tri-Delta sorority, while Enrique had flunked out after two semesters. He had spiraled into alcoholism and petty crime. Simone tried to hold on to him. She tried to be there, but their relationship had come to an abrupt end one night when Enrique accused her of infidelity and struck her. She had told him that she never wanted to see him again, and for ten years she hadn't seen him. However, 
There hadn't been a moment in ten years that he had not known her whereabouts, hadn't known about her life. She had always been watched. But that was then, and this was now. Things would be different this time. Enrique whistled as he walked to the front door of his mansion. Where's my abuela? Juanito said, stepping from the shadows. What? Enrique stepped back. I want to know what you have done with my abuela. <laughs> 